0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Published in 1851, Moby Dick was based in part on author Herman Melville's own experiences on a whale ship. The novel tells the story of Ahab the captain of a whaling vessel called the Pakwad, who has a three-year mission to collect and sell the valuable oil of whales at the behest of the ship's owners. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend, you both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that is three z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZMedia Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by The Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 68 The Blanket I have given no small attention to that not-unvexed subject, the skin of the whale. I have had controversies about it with experienced Sedwall men afloat and learned naturalists ashore. My original opinion remains unchanged, but it is only an opinion. The question is, what and where is the skin of the whale? Already you know what his blubber is. That blubber is something of the consistence of firm, close-grained beef but tougher, more elastic and compact, and ranges from 8 or 10 to 12 and 15 inches in thickness. Now, however preposterous it may at first seem to talk of any creature's skin as being of that sort of consistency and thickness, yet in point of fact these are no arguments against such a presumption. Because you cannot raise any other dense enveloping layer from the whale’s body, but that same blubber and the outermost enveloping layer of any animal, if reasonably dense, what can that be but the skin? True. From the unmarred dead body of the whale, you may scrape off with your hand and infinitely. Then, transparent substance, somewhat resembling the thinnest shreds of Isinglass, only it is almost as flexible and soft as satin, that is, previous to being dried, when it not only contracts and thickens, but becomes rather hard and brittle. I have several such dried bits, which I use for marks in my whale books. Thy tea is transparent, as I said before, and being laid upon the printed page. I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence. At any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. But what I am driving a fear is this. That same infinitely thin, isinglass substance, which I admit, invests the entire body of the whale is not so much to bear guarded as the skin of the creature, as the skin of the skin, so to speak, for it were simply ridiculous to say that the proper skin of the tremendous whale is thinner and more tender than the skin of a newborn child. But no more of this. Assuming the blubber to be the skin of the whale, then when this skin, as in the case of a very large sperm whale, will yield the bulk of 100 barrels of oil and, when it is considered that, in quantity, or rather weight, that oil, in its expressed state, is only three-fourths, and not the entire substance of the coat, some idea Mahan Sieb had of the enormousness of that animated mass, a mere part of whose mere integument yields such a lake of liquid as that. Reckoning ten barrels to the ton, you have ten tons for the net weight of only three-quarters of the stuff of the whale's skin. In life, the visible surface of the sperm whale is not the least among the many marvels he presents. Almost invariably, it is all over obliquely crossed and recrossed with numberless straight marks in take array, something like those in the finest Italian line engravings. But these marks do not seem to be impressed upon these English substance above mentioned, but seem to be seen through it os if they were engraved upon the body itself. Nor is this all. In some instances, to the quick, observant eye, those linear marks, as in a veritable engraving, but afford the ground for far other delineations, these are hieroglyphical. That is, if you call those mysterious ciphers in the walls of pyramids hieroglyphics, then that is the proper word taus in the present connection. By my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the Upper Mississippi, like those mystic rocks Too, the mystic marked whale remains undecipherable. This allusion to the Indian rocks reminds me of another thing. Besides all the other phenomena which the exterior of the sperm whale presents, he not seldom displays the back, and more especially his flanks, effaced in great part of the regular linear appearance, by reason of numerous root scratches, altogether of an irregular, random aspect. I should say that those New England rocks on the seacoast, which Agassiz imagines to bear the marks of violent scraping contact with vast floating icebergs, I should say that those rocks must not a little resemble the sperm whale in this particular. It also seems to Methat such scratches in the whale are probably made by hostile contact with other whales, for I have most remarked them in the large, full-grown bulls of the species. A word or two more concerning this matter of the skin or blubber of the whale. It has already been said that it is stripped from him in long pieces, called blanket pieces. Like most sea terms, this one is very happy and significant. For the whale is indeed wrapped up in his blubberus in a real blanket or counterpane, or, still better, an Indian poncha slipped over his head and skirting his extremity. It is by reason of this cozy blanketing of his body that the whale is enabled to keep himself comfortable in all weathers, in all seas, times, and tides what would become of a Greenland whale, say, in those shuddering, icy seas of the north, if unsupplied with his cozy surtout? True other fish are found exceedingly brisk in those Hyperborean waters, but these, be it observed, are your cold-blooded, lungless fish, whose very bellies are refrigerators, creatures that warm themselves under the lee of an iceberg as a traveler in winter would bask before an in fire, whereas, like man, the whale has lungs and warm blood. Freeze his blood and he dies. How wonderful is it then, except after explanation, that this great monster, To whom corporeal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found a thong, immersed to his lips for life in those arctic waters. Where, when seamen fall overboard, they are sometimes found, months afterwards, perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, as a fly is found glued in amber. But more surprising is it to know, as has been proved by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of a Borneo negro in summer. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality and the rare virtue of thick walls and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. Oh man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou? To remain warm among eyes. Do thou, too, live in this world without being of it? Be cool at the equator, keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's, and like the great whale, retain, O oh man. In all seasons a temperature often own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things! Of erections, how few are domed like St. Peter's. Of creatures, how few vast is the whale. Chapter 69 The Funeral Haul in the chains. Let the carcass go astern. The vast tackles have now done their duty. The peeled white body of the beheaded whale flashes like a marble sepulcher. But changed in hue, it has not perceptibly lost anything in bulk. It is still colossal, slowly it floats more and more away, the water round it torn and splashed by the insatiate sharks, and the air above vexed with rapacious flights of screaming fowls, whose beaks are like so many insulting poniards in the whale. The vast white, headless phantom floats further and further from the ship, and every rod that it so floats, What seems square roots of sharks and cubic roots of fowls augment the murderous din. For hours and hours, from the almost stationary ship that hideous sight is seen. Beneath the unclouded and mild azure sky, upon the fair face of the pleasant sea, wafted by the joyous breezes, that great mass of death floats on and on, till lost in infinite perspectives. There's a most doleful and most mocking funeral. The sea vultures all in pious mourning, the air sharks all pontiliously in black or speckled. In life, but few of them would have helped the whale, I ween, if peradventure he had needed it, but upon the banquet of his funeral they most piously do pounce. Oh, horrible vulturism of earth! From which not the mightiest whale is free. Nor is this the end. Desecrated as the body is, a vengeful ghost survives and hovers over it to scare. Espied by some timid men of where a blundering discovery vessel from afar, when the distance obscuring the swarming fowls nevertheless still shows the white mass floating in the sun, and the white spray heaving high against it. Straightway the hail's unharming corpse, with trembling fingers, is set down in the log, shoals, rocks, and breakers hereabouts, beware. And for years afterwards, perhaps, ships shun the place, leaping over it a silly sheep leap over a vacuum because their leader originally leaped there when a stick was held. There's your law of precedence. There's your utility of traditions, there's the story of your obstinate survival old beliefs never bottomed on the earth and now not even hovering in the air. There's orthodoxy. Thus, while in life the Great Whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to a world. Are you a believer in ghosts, my friend? There are other ghosts than the Lane one, and far deeper men than Dr. Johnson who believing in them. Chapter 70 The S-P-H-Y-N-X It should not have been omitted that previous to completely stripping the body of the Leviathan he was beheaded. Now, the beheading of the sperm whale is a scientific anatomical feat upon which experienced whale surgeons very much pride themselves, and not without reason. Consider that the whale has nothing that can properly be called a neck. On the contrary, where his head and body seem to join, there in that very place is the thickest part of him. Remember also that the surgeon must operate from above, some 8 or 10 feet intervening between him and his subject and that subject almost hidden in a discolored, rolling, and oftentimes tumultuous and bursting sea. Bear in mind, too, that under these untoward circumstances he has to cut many feet deep in the flesh, and in that subterraneous manner, without so much as getting one single peep into the ever-contracting gash thus made, he must skillfully steer clear of all adjacent, interdicted parts and exactly divide the spine at a critical point hard by its insertion into the skull. Do you not marvel, then, at Stubb's boast, that he'd mended but ten minutes to behead a sperm whale? When first severed, the head is dropped astern and held there by Aceable till the body is stripped. That done, if it belonged to a small whale, it is hoisted on deck to be deliberately disposed of. But, with a full-grown leviathan, this is impossible, for the sperm whale's head embraces nearly one-third of his entire bulk, and completely to suspend such a burden as that, even by the immense tackles of a whaler, this were as vain a thing as to attempt weighing a Dutch barn in jeweler's scales. The Paquat's whale being decapitated and the body stripped, the head was hoisted against the ship's side, about halfway out of the sea. Sought had it might yet in great part be buoyed up by its native element. And there with the strained craft steeply leaning over to it, by reason of that enormous downward drag from the lower masthead, and every yard arm in that side projecting like a crane over the waves, there, that blood-dripping head hung to the packwad's waist like the giant holoferneses from the girdle of Judith. When this last task was accomplished, it was noon and the seamen went below to their dinner. Silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck. An intense copper calm, like a universal yellow lotus, was more and more unfolding its noiseless measureless leaves upon the sea. A short space elapsed, and up into this noiselessness came Ahab alone from his cabin. Taking a few turns on the quarter deck, he paused to gaze over the side, then slowly getting into the main chains, he took Stubbs' long spade, still remaining there after the whale's decapitation, and striking it into the lower part of the half suspended mass, placed its other end crutchwise under one arm, and so stood leaning over with eyes attentively fixed on this head. It was a black and huddled head, and hanging there in the midst of so a calm, it seemed the S-P-H-Y-N-X as in the desert. Speak, thou vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which, though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses, speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams, has moved amid this world's foundations. Where unrecorded names and navies rust, And untold hopes and anchors rot. Where in her murderous hold this frigate earth Is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned, There, in that awful waterland, There was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell or Diver never went, Hast slept by Minya a sailor's side, Where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou sawst the locked lovers when leaping from their flaming ship, heart to heart they sank beneath the exulting wave, trueto to each other, when heaven seemed false to them. Thou sawst the murdered mate when tossed by pirates from the midnight deck, for hours she fell into the deeper midnight of the insatiate maw, and his murderers still sailed on unharmed, while swift lightning shivered the neighboring ship that would have borne a righteous husband outstretched, longing arms. O oh, head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. Sail ho, cried a triumphant voice from the main masthead. I… well, no, that's cheering, cried Ahab, suddenly erecting himself while whole thunderclouds swept aside from his brow. That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a betterment. Where away? Three points on the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down our Brzee us. Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way, and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. O nature, and O soul of man, How far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies? Not the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, but has its cunning duplicating mind. Chapter 71 The Jeroboam's Story Hand in hand, ship and breeze blew on, but the breeze came faster than the ship and soon the Pequot began to rock. By and by. Through the glass, the stranger's boats and manned masthead spurred her whaleship. But as she was so far to windward and shooting by, apparently making a passage to some other ground, the Pequod could not hope to reach her. So the signal was set to see what response would be made. Here be it said, that like the vessels of military marines, the ships of the American Whale Fleet have each a private signal, all which signals being collected in a book with the names of the respective vessels attached, every captain is provided with it. Thereby, the Whale Commanders are enabled to recognize each other upon the ocean even at considerable distances and with no small facility. The Pequod's signal was at last responded to by the stranger setting her own, which proved the ship to be the Jeroboam of Nantucket. Squaring her yards, she bore down, ranged a beam under the Pequod's lee, and lowered a boat. It soon drew nigh, but as the side ladder was being rigged by Starbuck's order to accommodate the visiting captain, the stranger in question waved his hand from his boat's stern in off that proceeding being entirely unnecessary. It turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board, and that Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Paquad's company. For though himself and Boat's crew remained untainted, and though his ship was half a rifle shot off, and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between, yet conscientiously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he peremptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Paquad. But this did by no means prevent all communication. Preserving an interval of some few yards between itself and the ship, the Jeroboam boat by the occasional use of its oars contrived to keep parallel Telf-Pakwad as she heavily forged through the sea, for by this time it blew very fresh with her main topsail aback, though indeed, at times by the sudden onset of a large rolling wave, the boat would be pushed some way ahead. But would be soon skillfully brought to her proper bearings again. Subject to this, and other the like interruptions now and then, a conversation was sustained between the two parties, but at intervals not without still another interruption of a very different sort. Pulling an oar in the Jeroboam's boat was a man of a singular appearance, even in that wild whaling life where individual notabilities make up all totalities. He was a small, short, youngish man sprinkled all over his face with freckles and wearing redundant yellow hair. A long-skirted, cabalistically cut coat of a faded walnut tinge enveloped him the overlapping sleeves of which were rolled up on his wrists. A deep, settled, fanatic delirium was in his eyes. So soon as this figure had been first described, Stubb had exclaimed, that's he, that's he, the long-togged scaramouch the townhouse company told us of. Stubb here alluded to a strange story told of the Jeroboam and a certain man among her crew some time previous when the Pequod spoke the townhouse. According to this account and what was subsequently learned, it seemed that the Scaramouch Inquestion had gained a wonderful ascendancy over almost everybody in the Jeroboam. His story was this. He had been originally nurtured among the crazy society of Neskina Shakers where he had been a great prophet in their cracked, secret meetings having several times descended from heaven by the way of a trapdoor announcing the speedy opening of the 7th vial, which he carried in his vest pocket, but which, instead of containing gunpowder, was supposed to be charged with laudanum. A strange, apostolic whim having seized him, he had left Neskuna for Nantucket, where, with that cunning peculiar to craziness, he assumed a steady, common-sense exterior and offered himself as a greenhand candidate for the Jeroboam's whaling voyage. They engaged him, but straightway upon the ship's getting out of sight of land, his insanity broke out in Afrochette. He announced himself as the Archangel Gabriel and commanded the Captain to jump overboard. He published his manifesto, whereby set himself forth as the deliverer of the Isles of the Sea and Vicar General of all Oceanica. The unflinching earnestness with which declared these things, the dark, daring play of his sleepless, excited imagination, and all the preternatural terrors of real delirium united to invest this Gabriel in the minds of the majority of the ignorant crew with an atmosphere of sacredness. Moreover, they were afraid of him. As such a man, however, was not of much practical use in the ship. Especially as he refused to work except when pleased, the incredulous captain would fain have been rid of him, but apprised that that individual's intention was to land him in the first convenient port, the Archangel forthwith opened all his seals and vials, devoting the ship and all hands to unconditional perdition, in case this intention was carried out. So strongly did he work upon his disciples among the crew. That at last, in a body, they went to the captain and told him if Gabriel was sent from the ship, not a man of them would remain. He was therefore forced to relinquish his plan. Nor would they permit Gabriel to be any way maltreated, say or do what he would, so that it came to pass that Gabriel had the complete freedom of the ship. The consequence of all this was that the Archangel cared little or nothing for the captain and mates, and since the epidemic had broken out, he carried a higher hand than ever, declaring that the plague, as he called it, was at his sole command, nor should it best eat, but according to his good pleasure. The sailors, mostly poor devils, cringed, and some of them fawned before him in obedience to his instructions, sometimes rendering him personal homage, As to a god, such things may seem incredible, but, however wondrous, they are true, nor is the history of fanatics half so striking in respect to the measureless self-deception of the fanatic himself as his measureless power of deceiving and bedeviling so many others. But it is time to return to the Paquad. I fear not the epidemic, men, said Ahab from the Bulwarks to Captain Mayhew who stood in the boat's stern, come on board. But now Gabriel started to his feet. Think, think of the fevers, yellow and bilious. Beware of the horrible plague. Gabriel, Gabriel, cried Captain Mayhew, thou must either, but that instant a headlong wave shot the boat far ahead and its seething strand all speech. Hast thou seen the white whale, demanded Ahab when the boat drifted back. Think, think of thy whale boat, stoven and sunk. Beware of the horrible tale. I tell thee again, Gabriel, that, but again the boat tore ahead as if dragged by fiends. Nothing was said for some moments, while a succession of riotous waves rolled by. Which by one of those occasional caprices of the seas were tumbling, not heaving it. Meantime, the hoisted sperm whale's head jogged about very violently, and Gabriel was seen eyeing it with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel nature seemed to warrant. When this interlude was over, Captain Mayhew began a dark story concerning Moby Dick, not, however, without frequent interruptions from Gabriel whenever his name was mentioned and the crazy sea that seemed leaked with him. It seemed that the Jeroboam had not long left home when upon speaking a whale ship her people were reliably apprised of the existence of Moby Dick and the havoc he had made. Greedily sucking in this intelligence, Gabriel solemnly warned the captain against attacking the white whale in case the monster should be seen in his gibbering insanity, pronouncing the White Whale to be no less a being than the Shaker God incarnated, the Shakers receiving the Bible. But when, some year or two afterwards, Moby Dick was fairly sighted from the heads, Macy, the chief mate, burned with ardor to encounter him, and the captain himself being not unwilling to let him have the opportunity. Despite all the Archangel's denunciations and forewarnings, Macy succeeded in persuading five men to man his boat, with them he pushed off, and, after much weary pulling and many perilous, unsuccessful onsets, he at last succeeded in getting one iron fast. Meantime, Gabriel, ascending to the main royal masthead, was tossing one arm in frantic gestures and hurling forth prophecies off speedy doom to the sacrilegious assailants of his divinity. Now, while Macy, the mate, was standing up in his boat's bow, and with all the reckless energy of his tribe was venting his wild exclamations upon the whale and essaying to get a fair chance for his poised lance, lo, a broad white shadow rose from the sea by its quick, fanning motion, temporarily taking the breath out of the bodies of the oarsmen. Next instant, the luckless mate, so full of furious life, was smitten bodily into the air and making a long arc in his descent, fell into the seat the distance of about fifty yards. Not a chip of the boat was harmed, nor a hair of any oarsman's head, but the mate forever sank. It is well to parenthesize here, that of the fatal accidents in the sperm whale fishery, this kind is perhaps almost as frequent as any. Sometimes nothing is injured, but the man who is thus annihilated, oftener the boat's bow is knocked off, or the thigh board, in which the headsman stands, is torn from its place and accompanies the body. But strangest of all is the circumstance that in more instances than one, when the body has been recovered, not a single mark of violence is discernible, the man being stark dead. The whole calamity, with the falling form of Macy, was plainly descried from the ship. Raising a piercing shriek, the vile, the vile, Gabriel called off the terror-stricken crew from the further hunting of the whale. This terrible event clothed the Archangel with added influence because his credulous disciples believed that he had specifically foreannounced it instead of only making a general prophecy, which anyone might have done, and so have chanced to hit one off many marks in the wide margin aloud. He became a nameless terror to the ship. Mayhew having concluded his narration, Ahab put such questions to him that the stranger captain could not forbear inquiring whether he intended to hunt the White Whale, if opportunity should offer. To which Ahab answered, Aye. Straightway, then, Gabriel once more started Tohi's feet, glaring upon the old man, and vehemently exclaimed, with downward-pointed finger, Think, think of the blasphemer, dead, and down there, beware of the blasphemer's end. Ahab stolidly turned aside, then said to Mayhew, Captain, I have just bethought me of my letter bag. There is a letter for one of thy officers, if I mistake not. Starbuck, look over the bag. Every whale ship takes out a goodly number of letters for various ships whose delivery to the persons to whom they may be addressed depends upon the mere chance of encountering them in the four oceans. Thus. Most letters never reach their mark, and many are only received after attaining an age of two or three years or more. Soon Starbuck returned with a letter in his hand. It was sorely tumbled, damp, and covered with a dull, spotted, green mold in consequence of being kept in a dark locker of the cabin. Of such a letter, Death himself might well have been the postboy. Canst not read it? cried Ahab. Give it me, man. I, I, it's but Adam's scrawl. What's this? As he was studying it out, Starbuck took a long cutting spade pole and with his knife slightly split the end, to insert the letter there and in that way, hand it to the boat without its coming any closer to the ship. Meantime, Ahab holding the letter, muttered, Mr. Har, yes, Mr. Harry, a woman's penny hand, the man's wife, I'll wager, I'm Mr. Harry Macy, ship Jeroboam, why it's Macy, and he's dead. Poor fellow, poor fellow. And from his wife, sighed Mayhew, but let me have it. Nay, keep it thyself, cried Gabriel to Ahab, thou art soon going that way. Curses throttle thee, yelled Ahab. Captain Mayhew, stand by now to receive it, and taking the fatal missive from Starbuck's hands, he caught it in the slit of the pole and reached it over towards the boat. But as he did so, the oarsmen expectantly desisted from rowing. The boat drifted a little towards the ship's stern so that, as if by magic, the letter suddenly ranged along with Gabriel's eager hand. Hecletched it in an instant, seized the boat knife, and impaling the letter on it, sent it thus loaded back into the ship. It fell at Ahab's feet. Then Gabriel shrieked out to his comrades to give way with their oars, and in that manner the mutinous boat rapidly shot away from the packwad. As, after this interlude, the seamen resumed their work upon the the jacked-off-the-whale. Many strange things were hinted in reference to this wild affair. Chapter 62 The Monkey Rope In the tumultuous business of cutting in and attending to a whale, there is much running backwards and forwards among the crew. Now hands are wanted here, and then again hands are wanted there. There is no staying in any one place. For at one and the same time everything haste to be done everywhere. It is much the same with him who endeavors the description of the scene. We must now retrace our way a little. It was mentioned that upon first breaking ground in the whale's back, that blubber hook was inserted into the original hole there cut by the spades of the mates. But how did so clumsy and weighty a mass as that same hook get fixed in that hole? It was inserted there by my particular friend Queequeg, whose duty it was, as harpooneer, to descend upon the monster's back for the special purpose referred to, but in very many cases circumstances require that the harpooneer shall remain on the whale till the whole tensing or stripping operation is concluded. The whale, be it observed, lies almost entirely submerged, excepting the immediate parts operated upon. So down there, some ten feet below the level of the deck, the poor harpooner flounders about, half on the whale and half in the water, as the vast mass revolves like he a treadmill beneath him. On the occasion in question, Queequeg figured in the Highland costume, a shirt and socks, in which to my eyes, at least, he appeared to uncommon advantage, and no one had a better chance to observe him, as will presently be seen. Being the savage's bowsman, that is, the person who pulled the bow in his boat, the second one from forward, it was my cheerful duty to tend upon him while taking that hard scrabble scramble upon the dead whale's back. You have seen Italian organ boys holding a dancing ape by a long cord. Just so, from the ship's steep side, did I hold Queequeg down there in the sea by what is technically called in the fishery a monkey rope attached to a strong strip of canvas belted round his waist. It was a humorously perilous business for both of us. Therefore, before we proceed further, it must be said that the monkey rope was fast at both ends, fast to Queequeg's broad canvas belt, and fast to my narrow leather one. So that for better or for worse, we too, for the time, were wedded, and should poor Queequeg sink to rise no more, then both usage and honor demanded that instead of cutting the cord, it should drag me down in his wake. So. Then, an elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother, nor could I anyway get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then, that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two that my free will had received a mortal wound, and the Tanither's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have a so gross an injustice. And yet still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and ship which would threaten to jam him, still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation, of man was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Only in most cases, he, one way or other, has this Siamese connection with that plurality of other mortals. If your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary by mistake sends you poison in your pills, you die. True, you may say that, by exceeding caution. You may possibly escape these and the multitudinous other evil chances of life. But handle Kwee monkey rope heedfully as I would, sometimes he jerked it so, that I came very near sliding overboard. Nor could I possibly forget that, though had I would, I only had the management of one end of it. The monkey rope is found in all whalers, but it was only in the packwad that the monkey and his holder were ever tied together. This improvement upon the original usage was introduced by no less a man than Stab in order to afford the imperiled harpooneer the strongest possible guarantee for the faithfulness and vigilance of his monkey rope holder. I have hinted that I would often jerk poor Queequeg from between the whale and the ship where he would occasionally fall. From the incessant rolling and swaying of both. But this was not the only jamming jeopardy was exposed to. Unappalled by the massacre made upon them during the night, the sharks now freshly and more keenly allured by the beforehand blood which began to flow from the carcass, the rabid creatures swarmed round it like bees in a beehive. And Reagan among those sharks was Queequeg, who often pushed them aside with his floundering feet. A thing altogether incredible were it not that attracted by such prey as a dead whale, the other was a miscellaneously carnivorous shark, will seldom touch a man. Nevertheless, it may well be believed that since they have such a ravenous finger in the pie, it is deemed but wise to look sharp-tot him. Accordingly, besides the monkey rope, with which I now and then jerked the poor fellow from too close a vicinity to the moth what seemed a peculiarly ferocious shark, he was provided with still another protection. Suspended over the side in one of the stages, Tashtego-Andego continually flourished over his head a couple of keen spades, wherewith they slaughtered as many sharks as they could reach. This procedure of theirs, to be sure, was very disinterested and benevolent of them. They meant Queequeg's best happiness, I admit, but in their hasty zeal to befriend him, and from the circumstance that both he and the sharks were at times half hidden by the blood-muddled water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer amputating Oleg than a tail. But poor Queequeg, I suppose, straining and gasping there with that great iron hook, poor Queequeg, I suppose, only prayed to his yojo, and gave up his life into the hands of his gods. Well, well, my dear comrade and twin brother, thought I, as I drew in and then slacked off the rope to every swell of the sea, what matters it, after all? Are you not the precious image of each and all of us men in this wheeling world? That unsound ocean you gasp in, his life, those sharks, your foes, those spades, your friends, and what between sharks and spades you are in a sad pickle and peril, poor lad. But courage! There is good cheer in store for you, Queequeg. For now, as with blue lips and bloodshot eyes the exhausted savage at last climbs up the chains and stands all dripping and involuntarily trembling over the side, the steward advances, and with a benevolent, Consolatory glance hands him, What? Some hot cognac? No! Hands him, Yegids. Hands him a cup of tepid ginger and water. Ginger? Do I smell ginger? Suspiciously asked Stubb, coming near, Yes, this must be ginger, peering into the as yet untasted cup. Then standing as if incredulous for a while, he calmly walked towards the astonished steward slowly saying, Ginger? Ginger? And will you have the goodness to tell me, Mr. Doughboy, where lies the virtue of Ginger? Ginger? Is Ginger the sort of fuel you use, Doughboy, to kindle a fire in this shivering cannibal? Ginger." What the devil is ginger? Sequel? Firewood? Lucifer matches? Tinder? Gunpowder? What the devil is ginger, I say, that you offer this cup to our poor quick here. There is some sneaking temperance society movement about this business, he suddenly added, now approaching Starbuck, who had just come from forward. Will you look at that canakin, sir? Smell of it, if you please. Then watching the mate's countenance, he added, The steward, Mr. Starbuck, had the face to offer that calomel jalap to Queequeg there this instant off the whale. Is the steward an apothecary, sir? And may I ask whether this is the sort of bitters by which he blows back the life into a half-drowned man? I trust not, said Starbuck, it is poor stuff enough. I, I, Steward, cried Stubb, will teach you to drug a harponeer, none of your apothecary's medicine here. You want to poison us, D? You have got out insurances on our lives, and want to murder us all, and pocket the proceeds, D? It was not me, cried Doughboy. It was Aunt Charity that brought the ginger on board, and bade me never give the harponeers any spirits. But only this ginger jeb so she called it ginger jeb you gingerly rascal take that and run along with ye toth lockers and get something better i hope i do no wrong mr starbuck it is the captain's orders grog for the harpooner on a whale enough replied starbuck only don't hit him again but oh i never hurt when i hit except when i hit a whale or something oft had sort and this fellow's a weasel what were you about saying sir only this go down with him and get what thou wantest thyself when stub reappeared he came with a dark flask in one hand and a sort of tea caddy in the other The first contained strong spirits and was handed to Queequeg, the second was Aunt Charity's gift and that was freely given to the Waves.